uh, I have the privilege of receiving the prayer request from some of the home groups uh, that meet during the week. And I uh, just recently opened up the prayer request, was praying through the ones from the Wednesday night home groups. And one of the prayer requests in particular really got my attention. The prayer request was that our church would be a praying church. That's a good prayer, isn't it? It's a real good prayer. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we know about prayer is that it's in some way, it's a discipline, isn't it? It's very difficult. Prayer is not daydreaming. But also, there are questions about prayer. How do we pray? What, what, are, what should be the topic of our prayers? Uh, what's appropriate? What's not appropriate? Who do we pray to? Those sorts of things. Well, that's one reason why uh, Scripture is just pregnant with the written prayers of some of the apostles and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're actually going to see a prayer from the Apostle Paul. And the interesting thing about Paul, Paul was a praying man. Uh, there are more prayers uh, uh, recorded in Scripture from the Apostle Paul, uh, with the exception of Jesus Christ, than anyone else. And we're going to land on one of those this morning as we look at the prayerful preparation that we are to have for Christ's return. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he open our eyes and that we could go deep with him this morning in understanding the importance of prayer. Father, we do turn to you in faith right now, God, and we express our heartfelt desire to worship you. Uh, but to know who you are as we are worshiping you. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in these wonderful prayers of the Apostle Paul, God. While we think about some 2,000 years ago in a Greek culture with a Jewish apostle that seems so foreign and so strange to us in terms of their, their culture and the way they dressed and the way they talked, well, the fact is this, is they are just like us. And it's remarkable to see the power of the name Christianity then we can read a passage that has been written for 2,000 years ago and we can place ourselves in that situation because it's the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Word, and we worship the same God and we have the same Savior, no matter what the culture is or the time. So we bless you for showing us uh, what the Apostle Paul uh, was going through and uh, what the Thessalonian church was going through. And I pray, God, that you would embolden us in terms of our faith, our understanding of doctrine, and also in our prayer life as we look at this example today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13 this morning. And this is basically Paul is wrapping up here his first section, and he's going to do so with this prayer here. And you remember that the Apostle Paul began with prayer, uh, this letter in prayer in verses uh, uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 1, we give thanks to God, that's a prayer, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ as the presence of our God and our Father. So he's closing this particular section here, and in so doing, you see Paul's pattern for prayer, and it's a good pattern for you to have in prayer. He starts off with thanksgiving, beginning here, and now he's closing off this particular section with a petition. It's always good to start off with thanksgiving. We tend to start off with confession, don't we? And then we end up never getting off the confession and we feel crummy afterwards, you know? Because we're just going through how miserable we are and how unfit we are and everything. Start off with thanksgiving. Start off with thanksgiving. Then you get to your petition. But it refocuses your attention on who's really important. So if he says no to every single prayer for the rest of your life, 
you're still the better for it because you're focusing your attention on the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ here. So we're going to look here uh, at this particular section here uh, in verses 11 through 13. Uh, with verse uh, 11, we're going to see Paul's prayer for his return and then a prayer for preparation at Christ's return in verses uh, 12 through 13. I'll read the text in its entirely and then we'll break down uh, these two different parts here. You may find your home group help insert of assistance to you and follow along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct your way, our, our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So first of all, we look at prayer for Paul's return in verse 11 here. He starts off here with this, I may, I may. So you're probably thinking, uh, is that the optative mood? You were thinking, no, you weren't thinking that. But that is the optimist, the Greek optimist mood. So it really is kind of, a, in a sense, it's expression, expressing a wish here. He, he is in prayer, but it's not so much a direct prayer. As one commentator says, but rather the devout utterance of a wish that the petition of verse 10, uh, that they may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith, will be fulfilled here. So what Paul is actually, first of all, praying for here is that he, he and himself, and also probably Silas and Timothy, that cohort who were familiar, with the Thessalonians here would be able to go back to Thessalonia and be able to, uh, to, to spend some time with them or as he says, see your face. So he is longing for fellowship. He has been prevented from fellowship. So, and this is one of the things you recall that we looked at earlier uh, in the passage in chapter 2 here. He has been trying to make his way up to Thessalonia uh, to be able to bolster their faith. They are a baby church. They're brand new and persecution came out. So he's trying to get back up there, back up to Macedonia. Uh, and, but he says, Satan hindered us. So what he's praying here is God remove the hindrance that Satan keeps putting in our way and allow us to be able to, to get up there, get rid of all these demonic efforts that keep us from being able to return so that we, uh, uh, they will direct you on the way there. And then he says here, and this is that important, this is probably one of those places in your Bible, uh, whenever I come up to a Trinitarian verse, I'll sometimes put a little triangle in the margin here. This is one of those Trinitarian principles here. And it, we've come to accept the Trinity. Uh, we understand that principle, but this was radical for the time here. And it shows you the truth of the Trinity here. Notice what Paul says. He says, our God and Father himself and Jesus Christ, our Lord, direct our way to you here. Uh, Gordon Fee, who actually passed away last week, he was, a, he was an amazing commentator, a wonderful theologian. He kind of points out that Paul, of course, was raised in strict, strict monotheism. Daily, if not three times a day, as do modern Jews do, he would have recited the Shema. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. From uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. One God, one God, one God, one God, one God, one God, right? Interesting thing about that is about a few hundred years prior to this, 
uh, Jews became very uncomfortable saying the word Yahweh. They were concerned that they might take his name in vain and therefore violate the Ten Commandments. So they went in and they replaced the word Yahweh with Adonai or Lord. And then, then the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that was written uh, by 70 scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, they, they would write in curios uh, the word Lord as a substitute for Yahweh. So the oral Shema now took the form in the Septuagint. Here, Israel, curios, your theos, curios is one. So Paul is now accepting that sacred tradition, but he's applying that one God to two different people here. It's remarkable. Uh, you see this uh, principle here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 here, it's, uh, uh, delineating the difference between our God and the gods of the pagans. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, and as many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. So in contrast to the, to the gods of the Greeks and of the, the lords of the different cults, we have one God who Paul identifies as the Father, and then we have uh, one Lord who he identifies with Jesus Christ. What's my point? So Paul combines the subject, God and Father himself and Jesus Christ, our Lord, in one uh, subject with a singular verb, direct our way. God the Father, God the Son, direct our way. So he's affirming the unity of the Godhead by, by stipulating the separate persons. You recall in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, the question comes, how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So, the, so the, the Father and Son are equal in terms of sovereignty. They perfectly agree in everything together here. And we can direct our prayers toward them. You know, sometimes I get confused. You know, when we say the Lord's Prayer in the opening morning, uh, I'll get confused. Uh, you know, am I saying the prayer to God or am I saying it to the Lord and everything? But you know what? It's okay. It's basically they're united together. A prayer said to the Father is a prayer said to the Lord, and it's appropriate for you to pray to either one of them, and they're both going to be united. They're not, you're not going to get different answers. There's not going to be an argument about how they're going to answer that particular prayer. So Paul shows the unity of the Father and the Son, but also the different persons. Hendrickson says this, It is comforting to know that the Father and Son are indeed one. He never need to be afraid that the Father is less loving than the Son, uh, of the, or that they are at crossed purposes. So, so don't let anybody tell you, oh, Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the principle of Trinity is on page after page after page of Holy Scripture. So it's interesting, though, Paul, Paul is going to the God, the Father, and the Lord to do what? To direct our way. Now, what Paul is doing is the same thing that we can have confidence that God is doing. He is praying, God, will you direct our way? Let us get up to Thessalonia. So we can have confidence that he is also the one who's directing our way. Folks, there's just, there is such peace in that. To know that God is the one who's before you opening doors and closing doors. He wants you to pray about it and he will use those prayers as a means for opening doors and closing doors. But God is in charge. God has established your paths. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. 
Psalm 37, 23 through 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. He delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. The same God who knows exactly when a sparrow flies to the ground, who knows the number of hairs on your head, is the God who is going to take care of your future. I don't know that we really believe that. I think sometimes uh, while we should have the peace that God has established everything, we still fear, but he's not going to establish it the way I want it. (laughs) Or he's not going to do it as, as fast as I would like it. God knows best. God knows best. You know, there's things that you desire right now that if God were to give them to you, they would ruin you. And there's things that will come into your life that you think have no purpose and I, sh- I deserve better than this and I shouldn't have it. And yet that's the very thing that's going to cause you to have more faith, more peace, more joy, more contentment in your life. So as Paul trusted God to get him up, to get rid of the, the devil activity, to get him up to the Thessalonians, trust him for Tuesday. Trust him for this afternoon. Trust him for marriage. Trust him for finances. Trust him for future. Trust him for calling. So it appears, too, that Paul's prayer was answered. According to Acts chapter 20, it says here that Paul left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through these districts, he had given them much exhortation. So Paul's prayer was answered here. Uh, Sometimes prayer is not answered, but in this situation, Paul's prayer was answered. Now, the rest of the prayer is actually directed towards uh, the Son or Jesus Christ, the Lord. And he says here for this prayer of preparation at Christ's return, verses 12 through 13. And may the Lord cause you, the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as he also we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints here. So he's praying here that the Lord would sanctify the church in anticipation of the return of Christ here. We want to be ready for his return. We don't want to be embarrassed when he comes back. We want to be, as it is, on, on, the, on the platform of a railway station with all of our bags packed looking up. We don't want to be, we don't want to be ashamed of what we have in those bags. We, want to, we don't want to be found doing something we, we uh, should not be doing here. And that's what he's trying to do there. He's trying for them to, to be ready for this. He says here, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. So God is the one who causes us to to uh, increase and abound in love. Does that mean you don't have to love? No. <laughs> you know, sanctification is a, is a work of both God's work in you and the Holy Spirit and your effort. It takes a lot of sweat to love sometimes. It really does. I mean, if you've, if you've ever... Even, even lovable people are sometimes difficult to, to love, partly because of our own sin nature. But God will give you a sanctifying spirit, a power to be able to, to do this here. So Paul is basically affirming what he's already said about them, that they are indeed a loving church. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. He's, he's, He's saying you've got this amazing love, but you can't rest there. We do that sometimes, don't we? We kind of think, well, you know, I overcome that temptation. I guess I have arrived. I guess you can just call me Mr. Holy Guy, you know. 
Uh, folks, in a, I hate to tell you this. I hate, especially you young people, I hate to discourage you. In a sense, you never arrive until you go to heaven. It's always a battle. And if you don't believe me, ask some of the older folks here. Because you think, well, I've really made great strides in this area. And all of a sudden, right out of left field, you're going fail. And the part of the reason why that happens is to keep you humble, right? Keep you depending upon God, who will be the one who, uh, who causes you to increase here. So I love this idea, though, of, uh, of uh, increase and abound uh, is actually uh, another way to interpret that is to spill over. We don't want to have just enough love to make it through our day and not sell our children to gypsies. You know, we want to have an overflowing love. We want to have the kind of love that is contagious, that spills out into other people. That idea is the, is the ocean spilling over his banks. What Paul wanted is he wanted the Thessalonians to have a kind of love in that church that the whole city would be inundated. That all of Macedonia would be inundated. And indeed, that's one reason why 200 years after this, the Roman uh, government uh, recognized Christianity as the official church of the empire because the love of the Christians was just humiliating paganism. People were mesmerized at the moral purity and the love of the basic believer in places like Thessalonia. Would that happen today? Would they happen today? Would they see such a joy, such a love uh, for, uh, for, for us, for having one another and for others that people say, tell me about your God. Tell me about your God. First of all, the love is to be one for other. The priority is, is the church family here, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love this idea of one another. There's 30 different one another's in Scripture. Generally, it re references to love. We are to love one another. And, and again, just because you're a Christian, just because you go to church, doesn't mean that you love one another. How would someone know if you love one another? For one thing, you participate, you commit, you develop community, you, you, you come into relationships, you bring covered dishes, you, you tithe, you volunteer, you speak to people instead of just going off on your own corner, you break out of your clique. You know, we're always having to work on that because what we'll do so often, we walk into church and we think immediately, I says, where can I get a seat? Where can I be most comfortable? How can I avoid talking to that person? <laughs> you know, what can I do? And then you sit down and, you think, and then you're then after the service thinking, how fast can I get out of here? You know, we understand. I understand. There's lots of reasons you may need to get out of here fast, etc. I'm going to have to get out of here fast next Sunday because I'm driving to Savannah, Georgia, because we're going to plant and start in a new church down there. So that's not because I don't love you. It's because I fear Interstate 95. Uh, so, so think about that. Be outward in your focus. But I tell you, if you try starting on Sunday morning, you've already failed. You, you think about that all week and you start on Saturday night and your prayers, God, how can I love somebody tomorrow? How can I express that? How can I serve? And I will guarantee you it'll be worth it because the spiritual blessings, the spiritual affirmation and just the good old fellowship that you'll have as a result of it will be worth whatever effort that you put into it. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't stop right here with the love one another. Remember, the Thessalonians are being persecuted. There are pagans out there and Jews out there that are making their life very difficult here. And Paul goes on and says, and, and for all people. Now, all people includes enemies of the church. All people. Even those who are giving you a hard time. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How do I love those? 
even if it doesn't work and they don't return it or they don't notice whatever, to keep you from having a spirit of bitterness and fear, you've got to learn to love others, even your enemies. Even your enemies. Probably the great example of that is Jonah, right? Well, Jesus Christ taught Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jonah could have used that verse because here's Jonah. Jonah was a religious guy. They're the worst. Uh, he was this religious guy. He was steeped in the scriptures. He had memorized the Pentateuch. He, uh, he was a prophet and perhaps he, he performed services at the temple and that kind of thing. So God calls him to take the gospel to, to preach repentance to Nineveh. Now, again, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria were the the evil, evil Nazis of the time. And you think, well, he could just go up to Nineveh and God told him to do that. He should do that. What if God told you in 1941, take the gospel and preach repentance in Berlin, Germany, Tokyo, Japan. During the Cold War, if he told you, go to Moscow and tell them they're wrong. Kind of puts it in perspective a little bit. But Jonah, of course, he goes, a fish eats him, vomits him on the shore. He goes in and his message was this. Repent in 40 days. This place is going to be destroyed. And that, that's his sermon. I mean, that's like, that ain't even like one point, you know. Repent in 40 days. This place is going to be destroyed. And what did they do? They repented to the point of putting sackcloth on the cows. I mean, that's just weird repentance. But they were serious, right? From the king down, they repented. And Jonah didn't like it. He got upset. He says here, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Can you imagine? We get angry when God starts saving people in our church. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is it not what I said and, uh, when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee Tarshish. <clears throat> I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord God remembered. Have you any right to be angry? <clears throat> have you any right to be angry? Because I have saved these people from the calamity that was to come them. You're wallowing in self-pity to the point you're so depressed that you want to die? I'm showing mercy. To, I showed mercy to you. I'm showing mercy to others. You should celebrate that fact. Yeah, but they're the enemy. Well, maybe not now. Maybe not now. Here's what's important for us. This is hard for us. It's just some people we like, some people we don't like. There's countries we don't like. It's important to remember this. This is what Jonah forgot. He used to be an Assyrian. You used to be an Assyrian. Uh, sometimes I get so frustrated at these wild young people who do stupid things and you read it on the news or you, you see someone flying down the street or your beer cans strewn all over the place. And I have to remember, when I was 19 years old, I was an Assyrian. <laughs> I was an Assyrian. And yet God showed us grace. So we're to love one another, we're to love all people. And Paul, of course, is an example here, just as we also do for you. Uh, we want to be that kind of example. I would love to, to just to have that kind of confidence where behave the way I do. That sh that'll show you something about Christianity. Say it in humility, of course. So that, and here's the reason. So that he may establish your hearts without blame. One commentator says to be established in love would help the heart 
uh, I'm sorry, would help the, uh, the, the Thessalonians to desire holy things and to no more easily uh, re- uh, reject an unseparated life. Uh, love is the motivator and it's the power to say no to the world and yes to Jesus Christ here. Of course, the heart is the center, according to the Greek dictionary, uh, is the center and source of all upper inner life and is the thinking, feeling, and the volition. It's, it's the source for all of our purposeful contact. It, you've got to change the heart. If you want the rest of your body to obey the Lord, you've got to change the heart. And, of course, the Spirit comes inside of you and helps you to do that. Uh, but the heart is the center of everything. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, The good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that from which fills his heart. Luke 12 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's an amazing scene in, in Schindler's List. Can't recommend the movie. I think it's rated R. Uh, it's rated R for violence as I recall. But uh, there's a scene there where, where Schindler, who rescued Jews, convinced the, the commandant of the, of the SS prison camp, the Gestapo prison camp, to show mercy. That there, It was actually very powerful to show mercy and to forgive people. And he kind of convinced them of this. And uh, he was disappointed in one of his Jewish slaves who didn't uh, clean a tub appropriately. And the Jewish slave is leading and the Nazi sitting there looking at him thinking, I should show him mercy. And, and, he, and he acted like he was going to show him mercy. But his heart was so bitter. His heart was so corrupt. His heart was so vile. It was so evil. He hated Jews so much. He ended up pulling up a rifle and shooting him in public. Why? Why would he do something like that? Because his heart was foul. His heart was foul. There's so many people out there that want to be better people. But they're, they're depending on their old, corrupt, fallen heart to do that. It takes a heart transplant. And that's what happens when you become born again. And Paul is now saying, though, but you can't just depend on that religious experience, that one opportunity where you got saved. You've got to work on your heart the whole time because the flesh is still there. We are still murderers in terms of uh, the fleshly desires that we have uh, every now and then. In C.S. Lewis's uh, Space Trilogy... Uh, he was on, uh, the, the, the hero of the story, Arthur Ransom, is on Mars, and Mars had never known sin. And there were some sinful men that had made their way to Mars, and he was explaining to the natives of Mars, he, he was having a hard time. How do you explain to someone that these people are evil when they've never seen an evil person? So the term he used was, they have a bent heart. They have a bent heart. They have a heart like you. They have a conscience like you. They have a will like you, but theirs is off. It's broken. It's bent, and that's exactly what he is trying to do here. He's trying to establish their hearts without blame. Uh, so you've got this, 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 these principles that come together here, as we talked about, of course, the Ten Commandments in our, in our lesson this morning here. But, uh, but uh, God combines, Jesus combines these Ten Commandments uh, uh, really kind of in a summary of two different commandments, right? In Mark chapter 12, Jesus summarizes the law by quoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, in Leviticus 19, 18. One of the scribes came to him and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered him well. Asked him, asked him uh, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment 
greater than these. Isn't that interesting? The, the, the Ten Commandments, and we think about all the, the, the regulations in Scripture, we think about all the things that our heart convicts us of or accuses of us of or defends us. You know, if you just love, if your love is abounding, increasing, if your love is spilling over, it sort of takes care of everything else. You love God, you love your fellow man. It's all, it's all about love. And we're to do this in the holiness before our God and our Father. You know, everything is before him. He, he, he is, uh, in a sense, an audience of one. He witnesses everything. There's this, there's this thing out there that it's only wrong if you get caught. You ever heard, anybody ever told you that? If, don't hang out with the kind of people who tell you that. You know, it's only wrong if you get caught. Guess what? You're always caught. You're always caught. You may not be caught by the police. You may, be, may not be caught by the teacher. But God the Father sees everything. We live our lives quorum Deo uh, before the face of God. But the, re, the thing here is that before we can stand in, in confidence and holiness at the return of our Jesus, of Jesus before God the Father, when he comes back here, is connected to the positive virtue of love. If we are loving the way Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians, we can stand with confidence. And, and that is harder, but also a little unique to us. When we start confessing our sin, either individually or here, do you not normally stay, say, forgive me for doing this, forgive me for lusting, forgive me for being angry, forgive me for losing my temper at my children, forgive me for gossiping, forgive me for cheating, whatever it might be. We tend to go down that line, the, the thou shall nots, right? But if we were to focus on the thou shalt, Lord, forgive me for not loving this way I should. Help me to love the way I should. Those other things, in a sense, kind of get taken care of. We're quick to recognize the thou shalt not, but slow to recognize this need for love, which is Paul is constantly encouraging here. So you got the situation here that, that they are to be blameless. That is in regard to their outward conduct towards others. But they're also to be in holiness, and that is the relationship with God. One commentator says this, to answer the prayer would become evident in the following ways. This is how you know if you're being sanctified. This is how you know if the Lord is growing you up in sanctification. First of all, the, uh, your knowledge of God's word is increasing. Your knowledge of God's word is increasing. Confidence in God is greater than before. Trust in his sovereignty is stronger than before. Obedience to him is consistent. And you're finding joy in the trials. You're finding joy in the trials. Now, that doesn't mean you get rear-ended on, on Boulevard Street while you're trying to turn into Anderson University. And you go, oh, boy, I was hoping to be rear-ended today. I love working through insurance people and hated that new car anyway. That, that's not what he's talking about. But it's when the trial has happened to know that that trial has come through the hands of a loving God. And for some reason, you're better off with a broken car than a fixed one that particular time. And let me just tell you, it's a lesson you eventually will probably learn. Just don't wait forever for it. It's much better to go ahead and embrace that truth that you will find your joy in trials. Why? Because you have trust and confidence in God. And why do you have that? Because you're continuing to grow in your knowledge here. So in all of your life, there's nothing more important than practical or more worth living for than to establish your hearts without blame and holiness. To establish your hearts without blame and holiness. And again, he's about to launch into this whole section about the return of Christ because their doctrine might have been a little squirrely in terms of their return to Christ. 
but, but, but devote yourself to this idea of establishing your hearts without blame and holiness. That is our calling. That is our great ambition. I was thinking about retirement. I was thinking about so many people who just devote their entire lives to be able to retire and to, and to put aside money. You should retire. Uh, you should put aside money. You should make plans for that and everything. But, but wouldn't it be something if that's what you put your hope on and Jesus Christ came back the day after your retirement party? You're thinking, but I got millions in my RA. You know, can you? I remember when we were getting married, we were like, Jesus, we want you to come back, but we'd like to maybe a couple of months after we get married. You know, there's a timing thing here. Folks, if you devote your life to being able to establish your hearts without blame and holiness, it doesn't matter when he comes back. It doesn't matter when he comes back. You're ready at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's going to talk more about this, chapters uh, 4, 13 through the end of the into the book here. And then he closes these thoughts with four prepositional phrases here. He says, in holiness, you are to be in holiness. Uh, do you know who David Brainerd is? David Brainerd was Jonathan uh, uh, Edwards' uh, son-in-law. He was a missionary to the American Indians. He died, I think, at like age 28 or 30, but he left a, a journal. And he said this, and this again is to, is to think positively instead of, I don't want to, I want to quit sinning. It's, I want to be holy. He said this when, as he's preaching to the, to, the, to the native tribes up and around the Massachusetts area. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. When my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. So he didn't have to get in there and instruct them on the Ten Commandments all the time. He didn't have to go through all these, this moral teaching you, you, out of your old pagan lifestyle into Christianity. He just kept the cross of Christ in front of them all the time. This is what our communion does for us. Kept the cross of Jesus Christ, the great doctrine of the atonement, in front of them all the time. And, and the, strange, the things of this world just grew strangely dim. They just... That kind of sin that they want to do, those temptations, everything just didn't matter because they're looking at the face of Jesus Christ. That's power, folks. That's enough power to change an entire culture, not just a church. So we're to be in holiness. We'll be before God. Again, we live quorum Deo. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're ready to come. And do, do, do not procrastinate holiness. He could come at any point in time. And then, this is interesting, with all the saints. Now, if you've got a New American Standard, ESV, or King James, that word is translated saints. If you have an NIV, it's translated holy ones. And there's a, a, commentators were split on this and what that, mean, that means. Uh, it actually, of course, means, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's got the word holy, hagios, in there. So it means holy, separated, that sort of thing. But it could mean saints, as in Christians, or it could mean angels. And it... It's, theologically, it's okay for, best, for both of them. If, if you believe that it means saints, as in other Christians, it's consistent with Paul's usage. For instance, in chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, uh, Paul says here, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we are still alive, will be left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, uh, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with him forever. So here, it probably could mean holy ones here, that he's going to come back with his holy ones. Basically, he's going to empty heaven. 
He's, he's getting to the point in the last times when Christ comes back, he's going to merge heaven and earth and we're going to populate the new earth where righteousness dwells here. Or it could mean angels. And Gordon Fee thinks it means angels because Paul is quoting probably, possibly, Zechariah chapter 14, where he talks about the return of Christ uh, when he stands on the, the Mount of Olives. And in, that, uh, that, in, in Zechariah meant Yahweh. Of course, Paul is applying Jesus to Christ now. Uh, in that day, uh, his, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west at a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move forward to the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of, uh, of my mountains, for the valleys of the mountains will reach Ezeel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. And there, of course, he means angels. Paul speaks of that in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. Uh, regarding the revelation of the Lord for the judgment against the enemies, Paul specifically identifies holy ones as angels and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire. So which one is it? Is it you or is it angels? It's theologically and exegetically it could be every one of them. But the reason why I go through that is I want you to ponder this for a minute. How wonderful is it that the same word to describe Christians is the same word to describe angels? That's how close we are. When you are in Christ Jesus, when you, are, you don't become an angel, you're always a Christian, you're always a person, you're a resurrected person. But I love that, that we don't know whether he's talking about saints or angels because the difference in God's eyes in some ways is so, so minor that the same term is used for both of them. What a blessing that is. So Paul, again, Paul is trying to encourage folks as they are preparing their hearts uh, for the return of the Lord. Uh, this is in keeping with other, uh, other apostles as well. In John, 1 John 3, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as how we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Revelation 22 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. So Paul means for this to encourage us, but also to motivate us. He is coming back, folks. He is coming back. What's our love going to be like at his return? That seems to be the big indicator of holiness and what, how we used our time, how we invested what he has given us. Paul closes this letter with a benediction, really with the same sort as this particular text. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. If you're overwhelmed by your sin, if you're discouraged by your lack of love, be not so. For he is faithful to be able to do this to you, and he is faithful to bring it to pass. Father, we do pray that you would sanctify us, God, and that you would teach us this merit of love, Lord. Our, our culture has become more and more cold. Even within some families, there's a lack of love, God. But Lord, you have created a new culture in the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that you would bless us by help us to be a people who are, our love is so apparent that it's spilling out into the rest of the city and into the rest of the state. Because we know you're coming back. 
And we want to demonstrate our love for you and our gratitude for what you did on the cross by loving you and loving others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.